I'd like to welcome everybody back to another episode of the House of Bricks podcast featuring top CEOs, business leaders, professional athletes, medical professionals. And I'm always excited to have my guests on the show or else I wouldn't have them on the show. And today I'm exceptionally excited to welcome uh, someone I met about a year ago, Jordan Norwood has an incredible story of how he's used life's experiences for him and really overcome a lot of adversity and made the best of a lot of difficult situations that produced an incredible outcome. So Jordan Norwood, I'd like to welcome you to the House of Bricks podcast. Hey Adam, thanks a lot for having me, man. My honor for sure. I know you've been following very closely every one of our episodes. You can't get enough of the House of Bricks. But as I mentioned before, uh, we're you know featuring people that have uh, really accomplished a lot in life. And we always look at the success that people have, but a lot of times people don't understand the work that it takes uh, to get to where you know, you've been able to achieve the outcomes you've been able to achieve. And so for our guests out there that aren't familiar with your story, Tell us a little bit about you. I am an eight-year NFL alum at this point. Uh, I retired from the NFL in 2017. Father, husband, all of those things. And uh, I'm home here in Denver, Colorado. I finished my NFL career here in Denver and decided to, to stay put, which a lot of guys do out here. And yeah, I mean, my, my NFL career was a, a long, windy one. I was undrafted, cut several times, injured several times found myself out of football right right in the middle of my NFL career. So you just you just let me know where you want me to start uh, with, with some of the, you know, the, the hurdles and, and things I, you know, was fortunate to be able to jump over. Yeah. So absolutely love to get into the NFL career and obviously achieved uh, the one of the greatest achievements in being an NFL player and winning a Super Bowl with Peyton Manning. But I know there was a long road in getting there. Tell us about your, I guess we'll start in high school, being a parent of four athletes trying to achieve whatever outcome they they are able to, whether it's playing at a division one level, semi-pro, pro. Just talk to us about your high school journey. I grew up in a football household though. My father's a college football coach, has been, you know, for over 30 years now, uh, and I'm 36. So, uh, so we did a lot of moving around growing up. He played football at the University of Hawaii, uh, where I was born, and then we bounced around I think maybe six or seven different states before I landed in high school in Pennsylvania uh, while he was coaching at Penn State. So in high school, I was an undersized, uh, still am an undersized wide receiver um, and defensive back. Uh, I, I graduated high school at about five, maybe 5'10", but definitely under 100, 155 pounds. So I was lightweight, um, you know, by all 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 purposes, definitely a lightweight, but um, I had some interest from D3 schools. And then with my dad being on the coaching staff and me being so close to Penn State, Joe Paterno and the rest of the, the rest of the staff decided to give me a shot. My dad actually stayed out of the recruiting process entirely, which is kind of its, its own story of kind of a split staff in terms of offering me a scholarship. There were definitely people on the staff that didn't, didn't think I deserved the scholarship. So a little internal chip on the shoulder there, too. But yeah, just just a, just a fun journey. And in terms of that that high school to college 
journey, there was literally one person that outside of my father that encouraged me and said, you know, Jordan, you can play at this level of football, the division one level. Don't doubt yourself. That, that's what it took for me. You know, I was undersized and wasn't sure if I was good enough or big enough for that matter. And took that one, one individual, Kenny Carter, to say that to me. That, that empowered me quite a bit. So you're 5'10", buck 55, looking to play D1 football at Penn State. So definitely didn't fit the mold on the external, from an external perspective. But obviously on the inside, you had to have some personal confidence in what you were able to achieve and then also some mental toughness. I want to talk a little bit about your dad being a football coach and growing up in a football household. Was he pretty demanding in terms of what his expectations were you know, from you in, in the classroom, on the field? Uh, did he create some regiments, uh, workouts that you got were committed to? Or was this something that he kind of stepped back and just played the dad role? It's definitely something that he's, he did more of the step back and, and encourage for sure, motivate for sure, lend his expertise for sure. But it was, for the most part, it was step back and play the dad role. One of the things that kind of shaped my upbringing was this whole moving around quite a bit. And within that, I had times when I was like, I don't feel like I don't feel like playing basketball, dad. I don't feel like playing football because I don't want to break down that social barrier of meeting new people. And I just didn't feel like going through it again. But one thing my, my dad did do, and, and my mom for that matter, is always encouraged me to get out onto the football field, get out onto the basketball field or basketball court, because they knew that once I did those things, a lot of things just start to fall in place for me, whether it's social groups and friends or the motivation to, to go to school and be and do well in school. You know, all of those things start to fall in place once I get onto a team and kind of show what I can do. So what he did obviously worked. And so are there any practical tools I'd even love to learn? Because as a father of four boys, I know the level of commitment it takes, not from the kids, but from the parents. Yeah, it's practice seven nights a week. It's tournaments in Chicago, Buffalo, Toronto. You're gone 36 weekends a year at different showcases. And so if I see my son play at a level I know he's not below a level I think he's capable of. And it's not production, it's commitment, it's effort, the you know, things that you can control, preparation. Did he ever get on you about those things if he saw you were unprepared or how would he handle that? I think that's a good question. For, for one, I think that it's important to let, and, and I'm a father also, I think it's important to let our our children fall in love with sport or art or you know whatever it might be so I, I think there is a fine line of of kind of pushing too hard and and for me and my upbringing my older and older brother and i loved basketball we were just like you said playing every weekend probably playing 100 games a year um, a calendar year and then fitting in football in those other two or three months uh, but we played a whole lot of basketball growing up and i think some of the things like when you mention effort and hustle and work ethic and those things that I definitely learned from my father and my mother and, and just the household that I grew up in. I actually don't think that those are things that need to always be taught on the basketball court or on the football field. Those are things that I learned within my household and they and they carried over. But it's it's those are character things that when I entered the the practice field for football, the effort was going to be the same as as for a game or for for any other occasion. And those I think those were more character things that my dad and and 
both my parents uh, really instilled on me, instilled in me on, on a regular basis. And so you're a pretty soft-spoken guy and you're playing one of the most, most violent sports that's played today, right? And did you have a place in your mental mindset you would go? What were you like on the field as opposed to how you are off the field? I, when I met you, I was like, this is the nicest guy I've ever met. We just hang out and talk and laugh. And it's hard for me to imagine you lining up from, you know, across from some of the guys in the NFL that are have a much more mean streak, both on and off the field. So did you have a, a different persona on the field as opposed to off field? Or you kind of came that carry that same quiet demeanor? I mean, I think the demeanor is is pretty similar. I think all my teammates would, would agree with that. I didn't turn into an ultimate, very profane trash talker on the field or anything. But there was definitely a place I had to go in order to, you know, put the pads on and get ready to do the things that you, you do within the lines of a football game. It, it's just like you said, it is it is violent. It is your your safety is at risk. So you do need to be there 100% mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. All of those things need to be very on point and, and focused in order to succeed, but also or in order to just stay healthy out there. You need to be on point. So you know, I, I wouldn't say that my personality changed on the football field, but internally, I, I definitely need to, needed to get psyched up and get myself ready and physically also get ready to take, take a beating, <laughs> to be honest. Right, for sure. And I know there's a lot of talk right now about people's morning routines. I have one myself. I'm hitting the cold plunge every morning, doing breath work sauna workout like there's different uh patterns that people follow or, or daily routines did did you have something you did consistently while you were playing whether it was in the morning or pregame how did you get yourself mentally ready yeah mentally for me was was always uh it was always a faith a faith routine that was my most important routine was my relationship with Jesus and how that played into my demeanor and approach and my humility uh, and pride, which which typically were the most, I would say, this ego and pride that finds its way into pro sports for, for the better in, in some cases and for the worse in some cases, for me was something that I always needed to check and make sure that I'm approaching games with, with a certain humility that caused me to succeed. If I approached games with a, an ego or a pride, it almost always resulted in uh, getting humbled <laughs> rather than uh, approaching it with the humility itself. So, uh, you know, that was, that was just me. And I, and there's, you know, a ton of different approaches to getting yourself ready for specifically for pro sports. And I saw all of them in my eight years in the NFL, I saw all of them in the locker room, but for me, it was a, a very spiritual and mental readiness that I needed before each game. And sometimes before just a practice, I needed it. So that was my approach. Well, I love that being open about your faith. And I, I know just from my interactions with you, it's not fabricated in any way. It comes across very authentic. It's not like just when you score a touchdown, you're pointing out to God, giving him giving him thanks, but it's something like you carry and and who you are. And you'd mentioned you've seen everything in your eight years as a pro career. You don't have to tell me who, but what was the craziest pregame routine that you can share with our audience? Oh man. You know, I think there's just mostly disturbing routines, like like guys that just felt the need they needed to walk around with with no clothes on for 
the entire pregame in the locker room, just put some clothes on, man. Like, right. <laughs> um, but I mean, there's everything from things like that to going out on the field two hours before the game and basically running a half marathon with how hard you're working out prior to the game. And it just always amazed me guys that could do that and still have the stamina to play a football game. But yeah, it's, it's you know, everywhere from that to guys just laying in their locker with, uh, with headphones on and basically taking a nap before a game people do what they need to do to get in the right uh, headspace and right physical stamina approach to a game it's interesting it's funny you mentioned that about the towels so my office is connected to lifetime fitness here in edina i always i'm in the locker room and i'm like hey guys the towels are free like you you can you can use those you don't have and and there's a place for it you don't have to put it around your shoulder it kind of defeats the purpose like we're we're all here to just change and get ready for work we don't need all that so that's funny that that happens there as well but uh yeah it must be a guy thing back to to coming out of high school you go to penn state as you know i've had a very successful career as an entrepreneur but also now helping coach other entrepreneurs and it's definitely a transition from being a player on the field to coaching you know being a coach you had the opportunity to play for joe paterno one of the greatest college coaches of all time is there any thing that you can share with our audience just in terms of how he was able to get buy-in from the team, what the culture was, how he was was able to establish and enforce it. Because at a D1 school like that, and then even more in the NFL, there's a lot of egos, right? Everyone has talent, everyone has speed, strength. It's how do you get it all to work together to really have success? So tell us a little bit about the culture there and how he was able to create buy-in. Yeah, I mean, I think the the culture at Penn State, even, even then in the early 2000s, I got to Penn State in 2008, it was different than most uh, Division One college football programs. And, and again, I only know this because my dad was in a lot of different Division One college football programs coaching over the past couple decades. So, so yeah, at Penn State, it was a, a very visible buy-in. And, and by visible, I mean, you know, everybody, nobody had beards at Penn State, you know, beards, whether I could grow one or not back then is besides the point. Like, nobody had facial hair, you know, that was part of the thing that was part of our culture. This this clean cut, you know, student athletes, nobody had their name on the back of the jersey. So you, you had to buy into this whole culture of, I'm going to sacrifice my personal identity for a little bit for the identity of this team and this bigger picture and these bigger goals, uh, team goals from a high level. That's what Joe Paterno uh, got young men to buy into. And along with that was the student athlete portion of that, where you're buying into being a successful student, having a certain GPA in order to be on the field. So, so yeah, high, high level, those are, you know, that's kind of the, the culture that Joe, that Joe built at Penn State on a day-to-day more tangible basis. You know, he was, he was an incredible human being and coach and somebody that was very intentional about knowing about the people in his life, I'll say, you know, whether it was a a player on the field, a coach on the staff, the secretary in the football building, people around town in State College, Pennsylvania, Joe cared uh, to know about them. And it showed, and and that's probably one of the most remarkable things about Joe Paterno that I can, that I can say is just how well he knew people and cared to know people. He didn't forget names or faces. Uh, even at 80 years old, you know, he could meet somebody once and see them 
in a completely different context two months later and say, hey, you're this, I met you here. How's your, you know, your son or daughter doing? I remember you told me this. And, and it's just incredible that, that he could do that. And so if you think about our audience and the purpose of this podcast, we do have professional athletes, but also business leaders and CEOs. Is there anything that you saw in that environment that could translate into the into the business world? So if I'm the CEO of a company, was his culture, hey, you're either bought in or you're out? Or was there kind of a process that got people to to buy into the vision? I would say that that Joe's particular culture at Penn State was was honestly more of the farm former. You you kind of either either bought in or you could you, you could find another place to make home and there was no hard feelings with that. And the reason that he was able to do that, because there was already so much success there that people wanted to buy in and, and respected his wisdom and authority and being able to lead teams to successful seasons and lead young men to successful college football and, and student athletic careers. So, so there was some there was some back end to, to that culture. But yeah, I, I would say in, in starting something, there just needs to be an identity. Right. And there was an identity at Penn State. You can identify a, a Penn State football player by having no name on the back of their jersey and, and that and that whole culture. So that being said, I, I think there needs to be an identity. What that is can kind of differ between group and organization and team, but there has to be something that an individual is buying into. And I, and I think Joe did a great job of really defining that both internally and externally, really. But I think that can go a long ways in any team, in any business, is defining that culture, defining that team identity uh, so that people know what they're buying into. Yeah. And as you can tell by the name of the podcast, right, we're playing off my last name and House of Bricks has a little basketball in it, but also bricks and building uh, a strong foundation in business and life. And we started sending out a weekly newsletter that talks about the different types of bricks and buildings and foundations. And the brick that we started with was the cornerstone, which gives the building direction, stability. And that's really what I'm inspiring my team to do as well now is Life is all about the journey. And I know a lot of people talk about that. Kobe was big into talking about the process. But if you're just grinding every day and loving the process with no direction, all you're doing is grinding and you just end up as a pile of dust. So as a leader, you need to create that vision, which it sounds like he had the inspiration, motivation, the culture, the proven track record, obviously coming into college, you're fresh out of high school. So you're still more looking for that type of leadership. But even when you enter into the business world, you're a little bit later on in life, but people still need that purpose and inspiration. And so we're trying to get our audience to be inspired about the process, but also have a direction in where they're trying to go. And so I appreciate you sharing that. And so your college career, obviously a ton of talent. There's probably pluses and minuses to having your dad on the coaching staff there. How were you able to establish yourself as a player there? And how did you do at Penn State? Yeah, in terms of my, my dad being on the coaching staff, it was it was always fun. Uh, he was on the defensive side of the ball coaching the secondary. So I, I went up against his guys as a receiver every day in practice. So didn't get fortunately didn't get coached directly by him, but fortunately and, and unfortunately, but had a great, great four year career at Penn State. Ended up playing as a, as a freshman, 
along with a couple other receivers. We had a really, really young in the beginning receiver group. And by the time I was a senior, we had a really, a really old receivers group, all of which transitioned into the NFL. Uh, so I was one of three receivers my senior year that I was about to say got drafted. I didn't get drafted. So not right. recruit out of high school come in as a freshman and you're getting minutes at Penn State and then you didn't get drafted out of college either but still ended up making it in the NFL for right yeah for for eight seasons yeah so eight seasons wow yeah had a, had a had a fine great career at Penn State and like I said came out with three other receivers who uh, we're both drafted in the third round. So I was I was sure that I would be drafted also, you know, soon after, but ended up going undrafted and getting my NFL career started. But yeah, you know, it's 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 definitely a journey. And I love what you said about that cornerstone, you know, because you realize that if that, you know, if that cornerstone is even off one degree, then the further you get out away from that cornerstone, the more off track, off path you end up being. So it's always, it's always great, whether it's a team setting or internally for a person to make sure that you have that foundation built with the right, laying the, the cornerstone in the right place in a firm with firm grounding. So I, I like that you brought that up. Thank you. And uh, you didn't get drafted coming out of Penn State. Did you just go to some camps and ended up getting signed or did you play somewhere in between? Coming out of Penn State, I went to the NFL Combine. I didn't run very fast there, which also might have might have played into me not getting drafted. But what's not fast to you, though? The, uh, I ran a four, four, five, six. So, okay. you know, at my size, I need to run faster than that. You know, being, you know, five eleven about 175 pounds coming out of college. You know, if you're going to be that that size, you need to, you know, you need to put something in the four fours for sure. So, so yeah, I went to the comp, the NFL combine, did my pro day at Penn State, which I actually did run in the four fours, ran a little, a little faster. But, but what happens is during the NFL draft, as it gets towards the late rounds, uh, and you're un and you're not drafted at that point. Your phone starts to blow up, and you have a you have some teams, you know, calling you say, hey, you know, we want to bring you in as an undrafted free agent. And so I had just that. I had you know maybe maybe twelve to fifteen teams that I had the opportunity to choose from to to attend their rookie mini camp, basically as an undrafted free agent. So I, I chose to go to Dem uh, to Denver. I chose to go to Cleveland as a rookie and ended up making it through their rookie mini camp and getting invited to the the official training camp just before the season. And yeah, that was that was the beginning of my journey. I ended up getting cut there at the beginning of training camp in or at the end of training camp in Cleveland and then moving over to Philadelphia a few few weeks later. But yeah, that, that was kind of my journey just the combine undrafted getting into training camp with Cleveland but but then getting cut. So talking about the mental toughness part of it, you mentioned the faith component, obviously a big driver for you and a great place to to put your trust and foundation in, but through these different challenges, I mean, you had to have some doubts at times. Is that, well, I'm not even being recruited out of high school. Yeah, I'm going to Penn State. Maybe I'll get some minutes there. Being a, a college athlete is a lot of work, right? I, I tell my kids to enjoy their sports as much as they can now, you know, balancing school and sports. But the older you get and the further along you are in your career, the more it becomes like a job. What what kept you going from a mental toughness standpoint, even getting into these undrafted camps and then not getting signed there either? Like what kept you so mentally tough? I, I think it, I mean, a big part of it is my, my faith journey and just understanding, 
who I was and why I was, you know, in, in locker rooms and having the opportunity to be even be in at a rookie rookie mini camp was kind of, you know, the basis of that. But but definitely mental toughness and just the thought of throughout my entire upbringing, it was just kind of just show up moving around the United States and not wanting to go to even try out for a new team, mostly because I was a quiet person and didn't want to make new friends. And my dad just encouraging me to just show up and get out there on the field, get out there on the court is something that always kind of rang in my head. Just continue to show up. Either good things will happen or things won't play out the way you want them to. But you're never going to know unless unless you show up. So so, so that's really what I did throughout my, my eight year NFL career was just continue to show up, continue to be prepared when I did show up, be a, a coachable player, do a lot of the little the details right. Just it just turned into a place where I started to make some football teams. Found a couple coaches and, and general managers of teams that really liked me. And really one general manager is, is someone that brought me from Philadelphia back to Cleveland and over to and over to Denver when I got to Denver in 2014. Uh, Tom Eckert is is just somebody that believed in me and sometimes it just takes that one person too. Well, you, you said a couple of really important things there that I want to drill on. First is the power that you can have in other people's lives by believing in them, right? You never know what that ripple effect is. The, the person that you recognized that's on your team or in your office, a, a coworker, uh, just that moment of inspiration can really make an impact and you, and you may, may not ever see the fruit of it, but just understanding the power. I've heard so many stories like that. And secondly, is you mentioned being coachable as a player, which can also translate into work. You of being a coachable team member by the CEO, what made you describe yourself as coachable? That's a great question. I mean, I, I do think in in pro sports and even specifically in football and even specifically at the wide, wide receiver position, sometimes there's there's egos there, and all of us have come from a a college career where we are, in, in most cases, we were the guy in college. And so when that, that doesn't always translate very well to the NFL, where there's a lot of guys that are the guy, right? And it might not be your turn to be the guy in your NFL locker room like it was in college. So, so there's a certain, maybe it's humility, maybe it's being coachable that has to happen in, in, in some of these individuals. Some of them have, can't, they can't all be the guy basically. And, you know, so I guess, I guess I was willing to, to understand that and to, to kind of be the guy that was just, Hey, can you do this? Can you play this position? This guy's hurt. Can you play his position? This guy doesn't know the play when we break the huddle. Can you make sure that he knows the play when, by the time you get to the line of scrimmage? So just, just those sorts of things that are not physical ability, they're more kind of effort or studying a little bit more that really helped probably added a couple of years onto my NFL career. And so you mentioned going to Denver, Cleveland, Philadelphia, Denver. I think that's the right order. We've talked about the coaches that you've been around. I know during your time at Denver, you probably had some pretty good teammates, not to favor one over the other, but your quarterback uh, was one of the greatest to ever play the game. Can you tell us who that was? And as a leader, some of the attributes he was able to demonstrate to get his team to, to buy in? I mean, so Peyton Manning was the quarterback when we won the Super Bowl here in Denver. I'm going to assume that's who you were talking about. I did also play with a couple other great Denver quarterbacks. But, but Peyton was, I mean, he was just 
just how you would think Peyton Manning is in the locker room. He's somebody that has high expectations of his teammates and of himself, ultimately. Just commands respect by way of his pedigree and, and what he had done at that point in his NFL and college career. So it's that type of leadership, Peyton Manning, DeMarcus Ware, our head coach, Gary Kubiak, that really had us transcend our abilities and win the Super Bowl, which is which is what I think it takes. You know, there needs to be some intangible difference maker on a team in a team's chemistry uh, that causes them to go that extra mile and, and win the win the big game. So, you know, that that sort of le- leadership and kind of unspoken expectation that that I had for myself because of a quarterback like Peyton Manning is something that that takes teams to the next level. Obviously, he's he's prepared, knows the game, has the pedigree. In terms of him getting the team to buy in, was was he very vocal about that, or was it just demonstrated? Like you were just you just knew he was prepared, and you didn't want to let him down. That kind of culture. Well, I mean, I, I think that was part of it. The the latter, the you not wanting to let him down. I, I do think that that was honestly part of it. I would say that we had a very we had a rough season. We started off pretty hot and then our offense didn't really play very well. Um, and something that ha- can happen in NFL locker rooms very quickly is this very divisive. The defense is upset with the offense because they're not playing well or it could be vice versa. But I think it was kind of at that point in our in our season when when we saw the leadership of Peyton and really bringing together our offense. He organized team dinners every week where we would just get together and chat about the upcoming game or really just, you know, just hang out and have a great steak dinner and get to know each other and build kind of that the morale boost and and the camaraderie that that he knew we needed. He knew that we needed to stick together and that we could make it through the playoffs and to the Super Bowl if we did that. So yeah, I mean, we, we all bought into the X's and O's and, and all those things on the field, but there was there was going to be some things that we needed to do off the field that Peyton led because we were, we were having a tough time as an offense and he, he gathered us and kept us together. And just talk to you a little bit about the Super Bowl. So if my memory serves me correctly, you had a pretty incredible play during that game, a punt return. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah, that is correct. You want to tell us what the score was, the setting? I mean, it's okay. I know you're a humble guy. I know you don't like accolades, but <laughs> just set that aside for a minute and put us through that experience as if we all know that you are humble and it's not about you, but let it loose a little bit. Sure. Well, I mean, I think I think you're going to be disappointed that I don't know what the score was at that point in okay. the game. So I'm I'm not like a I'm not a huge football fan. First of all, just to let you know, like I I loved playing and uh, being out on the field, and that experience at the Super Bowl is incredible and and will always be one of my favorite memories. But yeah, it was you know it was late into the second quarter. I actually was not even the starting punt returner for the game. I was kind of the one of the reserve punt returners. Being a punt returner, it, punt returner is a very stressful position to be in, especially in the Super Bowl, um, and especially if your job requires you to do a lot of playing receiver in offense. So our starting punt returner, Emmanuel Sanders, he just wanted to focus on this next upcoming offensive drive and not have the pressure of catching a punt return in a windy uh, San Francisco stadium. So he tapped me on the shoulder and you know asked if I would go back and get that this next punt return, which I obliged. Um, so, I, so I hopped back there and 
Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I remember this vividly. The ball's punted to me. It's hanging up in the air. I look to my left and right to see how the, the position called gunner to see if they're running down and look, look like they'll get to me in time before the ball gets down. And I, I measured incorrectly. I thought I had enough time to catch the ball and, and make some moves and run. Where in reality, when I caught, by the time I caught the ball or by the time I was about to catch the ball, I didn't have enough time to fair catch it. Um, so I, I went ahead and caught it. And the, the Carolina Panthers, they were all over me. Um, but there was one guy on the Carolina Panthers that thought I fair caught the ball. And he was the first one to me, fortunately, because he ended up kind of pulling up and, you know, putting his hands up, which signaled to all his other teammates that, oh, he must have fair caught it because the, our first guy to him, you know, kind of pulled up and didn't hit him. So there was, you know, six or seven Carolina Panthers around me, none of which tried to tackle me in that first millisecond of me catching the punt and yeah that said Adam I kind of took it and, and ran around the corner and ended up running about a 62 yard punt return which was the longest punt return in Super Bowl history at the time but it ended up setting us up to take the lead or extend our lead I think we extended our lead after that punt return and then never lost our lead at that point and and you know ended up going on to win the Super Bowl well, you got to give credit to your dad for that because why he told you just show up, right? If you're not on the field, that doesn't happen. Exactly. And the second is things don't always have to go how you script them in life because they never do. And that defender thinking you fair caught the ball, you getting tapped into the game, and then boom, you set a record in the Super Bowl for the longest punt return for a guy that, you know, doesn't even really like football. He's playing on the <laughs> highest stage. Uh, now he's sporting a Super Bowl ring, uh, but I, I get it. I, I I love other sports, but there's something about basketball. Like it just takes me to another mindset where it's just I, I could play all day and and love the game. So I do understand uh, your passion. Is basketball like truly your passion? If you could have picked one over the other, no. And, and maybe maybe I misspoke there. I, I I was I was saying that I'm not a not a huge fan of the game. So I was saying that I haven't gone back and watched that Super Bowl tape very much, which is why I don't know what the score was uh, when, when I went into the game. But but yeah, basketball is actually a sport that I, as I've mentioned, I've, I grew up t playing a ton of basketball when I was finishing up at high school and I went to my guidance counselor and said, I need my transcripts to send them to Penn State. She she didn't even know I played football on the high school football team. So she was like, oh, are you going to play basketball? at Penn?" State? I was like, no, I'm going to play football. I didn't even know you played football, Jordan. So, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of, I, I, I love myself as a basketball player and apparently some other people saw me as a basketball player too. That's so funny. So we've talked about your sports career. I know there's a lot of detail we could go into there, overcoming injury, talked about some of the coaches, the great teammates that you have, but I know you as well in your life after football. I know a lot of professional athletes that have a hard time kind of making that transition, right? Of making lots of money, being a pro athlete, but no matter how long you play, you have a limited sh shelf life. And then what do you do afterwards? So talk to us about kind of the ending of your NFL career and then moving on to the professional career outside of football. I finished playing in 2017. Fortunately for me, I was in a position where I wanted to be finished playing. I called my agent and asked him not to not to field any more calls from teams, um, which he still did. He still he still let me know when, you know, the the Detroit Lions wanted me to come out and 
uh, the New York Jets. But but I, but I was done at that point in 2017. We had just, my wife and I had just had our first and we're about to have our second child. And I was re- just ready to move on. And, you know, when people ask me about my transition out of pro sports and organized and organized sports, I, at this point, I've always said that I'm, I feel like I'm still transitioning. I'm still learning new things about myself and the way I operate. Um, also learning new things about business and how to operate businesses. And that being said, you know, I've, I've started a few different businesses, uh, done some things in real estate um, over the past five years, started a photography business with my wife, shooting portrait photography, weddings and headshots and things like that. Um, and most recently, I started a, a blockchain company about two years ago now that through that, we've actually acquired some ownership in a sports team called Power, which is in the Big Three Basketball League, uh, which is a, a ton of fun. I'm also learning a lot about what it looks like to, to own pro sports franchises, which has honestly been a, a dream of mine. So it's really exciting. It's really a lot of fun. And there's a there's a huge, uh, a huge learning curve that I'm participating in right now. And you mentioned the big three. And so thank you for the tickets. I uh, got to go to my hometown of Detroit and watch the big three. I had seen it on TV, but didn't really know what to expect. So for those of our listeners that are out there, if you haven't watched it on TV, it's very good basketball. It was even more fun to go to the event, and I was surprised. I, I didn't know who some of the coaches were. I mean, you had Dr. J, George Gervin, obviously Ice Cube was there. So it was a very well-attended event. I saw some people in Detroit that I actually grew up either watching, Derek Coleman playing against Steve, you know, Tricky Steve Smith. I mean, there was, uh, it was kind of a walk uh, down memory lane in basketball. So really cool event. You had mentioned some of the things that you're learning in terms of now owning a team. Like, is there, are there things that pop out to you that you could share just like that difference of being player, coach, and now from an ownership perspective? There's quite a few things that, that pop out, right? I mean, you, you start to think about um, the bottom line, uh, really, you, you start to think about things outside of what goes on in between the lines of the court which is as a player that's that's the majority of what you're thinking about you're thinking about your performance on the court and how that relates to your compensation maybe but but that your compensation is really the only other thing that you're thinking about other than how well you're playing so so it's it's really cool to think about marketing and the players that we have and their personal brands our coach nancy lieberman is incredible just inducted uh, for the second time into the naismith pro basketball hall of fame we have Tino Mobley, who was uh, one of my favorite players growing up. So seeing how we can help to grow the, the personal brands of our of our players along with our team is, is really cool and a lot of fun for me to really you know dig in and approach and um, and get creative with. Well, I want to thank you for being a guest here on the House of Bricks. You've been an amazing guest. I know there's things our our listeners have learned today from being the son of a coach, how the coach kind of influenced your dad, influenced the culture of your home. I Again, I know the investment that parents are making today in youth sports, just the time, the money, the resources. It's a difficult balance of how do you teach your kid to take responsibility and understand the commitment, but also letting them fall in love with the process on their own. Uh, You've played for some phenomenal coaches uh, throughout your career, great teammates, uh, but also want to recognize you, Jordan, just in what you have accomplished. You're not only a great athlete, but a great human being. And uh, it's been an honor to 
have you on our show and I know our guests will benefit greatly. So I'm hoping this is not the last time you'll be on our show because I know there's plenty more that we can talk about. So Jordan Norwood, thank you for being a guest on the House of Bricks and uh, look forward to seeing you soon, my friend. Great. Likewise, Adam. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you.